Hello and welcome to episode one of the Drone Mentor podcast. Hi there, I'm Matt Williams, I am the Drone Mentor and welcome to episode one. One, where we'll be talking about my journey to becoming the drone mentor, the things that have happened over the last 38 years at the time of recording this now that have led me to this point now where I'm in front of you and your ears talking to you, helping you learn, build and grow in the drone industry. And I think it's important really to preface this with the fact that now the training that myself and my team over the years have delivered has gone out to more than 43,000 people, which is an incredible incredible number when you think about it. And as we've been teaching people to fly their drones and primarily in the the kind of certified space, if you like. So that's the main thing in the past that myself and my companies have done. We have taught people um, how to get their certificates so that they can fly drones in various places around the world. Um, but actually, there's been a big kind of common thread running through all of the training that we've ever done, all of the things that I've done online, all the things I've done on the various YouTube channels, where people have been asking for more. And people have been saying, look, it's all well and good getting the amazing training to get our certifications, to get our qualifications. But actually, this drone thing how do we get work? How do we learn how to fly the drone? How do we learn how to get the most out of the camera? And that really, I think, underlines, underpins what the whole drone mentor movement is about. It's helping you to learn, to build and to grow as a drone pilot, as a person, as a business person, potentially, if that's the route you want to go down. It's how do we not just past the qualifications that we need to to fly in our country, wherever you may be around the world, and get the certificates that we need. It's about how we then get the most out of that drone. And, and actually, for a lot of people, how we can change our lives and change other people's lives by flying a drone. So to that end, there's going to be plenty of tutorials, there's going to be courses, there's a podcast here, um, there's a blog coming to the website, and we'll be traveling the world literally and metaphorically to help you. So to that end, um, please feel free to get in touch. I'm doing this podcast not for me, but for you guys. OK, um, it, it's uh, hopefully going to form a great resource that we can all use to do this, learn, build and grow to, to maximise that philosophy and get the most out of everything. Um, so, yeah, so get in touch. Um, you can email me hello at the drone um, and, and that probably is the, the best way. We've got a Facebook group as well. Um, if you just look for the drone mentor. But again, if you if you join, if you go to the drone and join the mailing list, for example, um, you can find that at the bot bottom of the, the home page. Um, I will send you links to things like the Facebook group and all that sort of stuff. And we're building a great community. Um, some of the other communities that I've built have got over six and a half to 10,000 people in them, um, you know, particularly the group that we run in the UK for certified operators. There's lots of people, there's lots of helpful advice in there that, you know, really does um, help us all get better and fly safely and get more for my drones and, and more for my businesses, if that's the route that you are going down. But yeah, let us know what you want. Do you want long form um, content, you know, would you prefer me to come on once a week and talk for an hour? Would you prefer me to come on every day and talk to you for, you, to you for kind of 10 minutes and give you a little top tip that day? Um, would you prefer me to just do interviews and, and save that up so that once a month you get an interview with someone? Or would you like a mixture of it all? Go over to thedromentor.com. Please let me know. Sign up to the uh, the newsletter over there in the community. I'll let you know how to join that. Um, and drop me an email directly. Hello at thedromentor.com. 
com is where you can get hold of me on that side of things. Just taking a little sip of drink, sorry. So, becoming the drone mentor then. What's the, the story behind it? How have I got here to stuff in this droney goodness in your ears? By the way, um, I'm also recording these on video, so there will be a place to get the long-form version of the podcast on a, a kind of unedited video, if you like, an unedited video version of that. Um, and again, if you sign up to the Drone Mentor um, email list, I will send you a link when those videos are live. They won't be going onto the YouTube channel, They'll primarily sit with inside the members area over at thedronementor.com. Anyway, moving on. So becoming the drone mentor then. Now, I have always been ob totally obsessed with aviation. Um, it's all I've ever wanted to do. It's the only thing I ever wanted to do as a career. Um, and actually, I was lucky enough to do that for a long time. Um, but I'll come on to that shortly. But um, yeah, uh, it was all I ever wanted to be involved in is aviation. And alongside that, I was then one of my main hobbies growing up was photography and film. Um, I used still cameras, um, you know, my dad's Sony Handycam when we had one of those um, with a little DV tape inside, um, used to take that around whenever he wasn't using it and, and take uh, videos of like family holidays and going away doing athletics events and things like that. Um, so always been really obsessed with it. And when I was younger, when I was 12, I set up my first business. It's crazy, isn't it? I set up my first business selling computers and software from home, um, writing programs um, and building PCs and selling those. And I used the money from that to buy myself my first ever still camera. It was a Minolta, for the geeks out there that want to know this, it was a Minolta Dynax 505 SI Super um, SLR camera. Um, with you know wet film in there um i bought all the gear i needed to to kind of have a um a dark room in the loft at home um, and processing my own pictures and stuff and learned so much from doing that about you know composition and the different types of film and uh, i had to keep a notebook at the time i remember you know we would keep i keep a notebook of the settings i'd use to take certain photos in certain um, kind of conditions. Was it nighttime? Was it daytime? Was it bright? Was it cloudy? What white balance? You know, it was all these different things. White balance, we didn't have white balance back then. It was just, uh, you know, shutter speed, aperture and the ISO of the film. Crikey, there's a there's a throwback. But yeah, so it, it all comes from that really and, and learning the basics and, and over many, many years um, pulling that obsession with phot photographic prints and getting my... Um, work onto oh for anyone who's watching that my uh, my screen just went off um yeah pulling together my obsession of um the getting pictures in print and then moving on you know to the kind of sony handicam side of things of getting things on video and finding different ways to transition things and and make things more interesting um and make videos more interesting um so that's that's really where all of that started um then into the kind of aviation side my family you know my background we had no money for me to be able to learn how to fly that wasn't something that i was ever going to be able to do um you know and that really i think was the the spark and provided the drive and the desire behind me setting up my businesses it was so that i could try if possible to eventually get my pilot's license and eventually get my 
airline licenses so that I could become an airline pilot. Um, there was That was kind of a fallback plan to me getting into the Air Force, though. So I always wanted to be a pilot in the Air Force. Um, it was just that where I grew up in um, a small town called Newcastle under Lyme um, in a city in the middle of England called Stoke-on-Trent um, where I grew up and the community that I grew up in wasn't really somewhere that you know someone would then go off and join the Royal Air Force and become an officer and all that sort of stuff so um, my background very much didn't set me up to to achieve in that so my fallback was earn some money you have enough to get your pilot's license and then uh, potentially go and get a scholarship into an airline. Um, so that was really what I wanted to do or what I'd planned to do. Now, alongside that, because I was so obsessed with aircraft, I managed to um, get into model flying, um, model aircraft, um, fixed wing initially, because I couldn't afford to fly model helicopters. They were way too expensive. Um, and I joined a local flying club when I was 12 um, and got my BMFA, they're called the British Model Flying Association um, certificates. Um, so that I could fly model planes. And that really allowed me to get my aviation fix, if you like, for quite a long time without spending a huge amount of money. Because if I'm honest, I would generally go and fly other people's aeroplanes at the club um, and, you know, made friends with them, net networked with them, I suppose, in effect, um, as, a, as a young kid, the youngest kid in the club at the time. Um, and managed to go and yeah get a lot of uh, a lot of experience and a lot of good times and a lot of uh, a lot of free free model model flying from there um so that's that kind of got that fix and got me you know the hands and sticks on the controls um from a very young age um i joined the air cadets which is an organization in the uk um which at the time was kind of um i just suppose it wasn't funded by the air force but it it had very close links to the royal air force there a lot of the ethos um and mentality of being in the air force was passed down into the air cadets and um, i really enjoyed that experience it gave me um, a lot of discipline i learned how to shine my shoes properly and maintain my uniform properly and have that discipline and i learned how to do the the drill marching around the parade square and all that sort of stuff learned how to shoot in the uh, air cadets um, and actually i also learned how to fly in the air cadets as well um, so i managed to um, get a gliding scholarship um, with the air cadets and in my case where the the school that I went to um, the RAF gliding school um, flew powered gliders so they were motor gliders so actually kind of the best of both worlds really I got the gliding scholarship um, soloed at 16 in a vigilant motor glider it was called um, and I yeah a really really interesting experience and I then went on to become a staff cadet at that same gliding school um, so I went there every weekend um, and helped out for a day on a Saturday um, from getting the aircraft out of the hangar in the morning, cleaning them before the, uh, the, the students arrived that were coming on their scholarships and for their flying experience that day. Um, and then, um, you know, would help them with things like getting the briefs done, getting strapped into the aircraft, getting them out again, looking after them. So and then putting the aircraft away at the end of the day. So, again, it was more discipline, but it was more just being around aircraft. Right. It allowed me to be around the aircraft. And occasionally we would then get to go flying at the end of the day. So um, probably a couple of times a month, I'd get to go up for 20 or 30 minutes at the end of the day with a staff pilot, um, watch them fly. They would generally let you do a lot of flying as well. So it was really um really exciting as someone who was obsessed with that you know um, anything I could do to get my 
get my little mitts on a um, on an aircraft, whether it was a model plane or a full sized aircraft. I did, and um, as I say, we had no money, so I I tried to find a way to do it that was cost effective or zero cost. And I, it's it, interesting because a lot of people say, "Oh, you can't get into aviation nowadays if you've got no money." Blah blah blah. And I agree with that to a certain extent, but I think hopefully I'm a testament for. For some people out there who think that it's unobtainable, I mean, I was certainly told it was unobtainable. I'll come on to this in a second. Um, and I managed to achieve it despite having, you know, very um, little opportunity, I suppose, given to me or available to me um, at the very beginning. So that then led to me trying to get into the Air Force. So I, at 16, applied to get into the Royal Air Force. Um, as a pilot because they opened up something called the direct entry scheme um, so you didn't have to at that stage then for a short period of time have a degree you always had to go to university and get a degree to become an officer to then get in as a pilot into the air force and um, I managed to well I went and applied for what's called a flying scholarship a sixth form scholarship actually I should say um, so that the air force could sponsor me through sixth form and then I wouldn't go to university and I would join straight up as an officer at 18. And I actually got rejected from joining um, on a sixth form scholarship. Um, I did really well through um, what's called OASC, Officer Aircrew Selection Centre, RAF Cranwell over in Lincolnshire. And that's where you go um, for potentially up to three days, as it was at the time, um, to do lots of different tests. So it's um, cognitive tests, it's... Um, you know, um, aptitude testing, a whole battery, a whole day of aptitude testing. If you get through that successfully, you then go on to things like group exercise in a hangar. Um, then if you get through that successfully, you then go on to interview stages the following day and people go home at every stage throughout the day. And um, yeah, I, I got through it and did really well. And the letter that came back, I was so excited. I remember I was in the bath when the letter came through, um, lying in the bath at home, or lying in the bath in the bath at home before I went to uh, to school one day, and um, came you know running down. Oh, we've got a letter from the air force. Blah blah blah. So okay, get out of the bath really quick. You know, open the door. Mum and dad are there, and um, opened the letter, and it was unfortunately said I'd been unsuccessful. It said I'd done really well. I'd really impressed. I'd done really well in the aptitude um, and all of the different exercises, but they didn't like the way that I spoke, and I spoke very colloquially. Um, I'm from a place called the Potteries, um, say in Stoke-on-Trent, um, in the middle of England. And we have a very strong local accent in the Potteries. I know a lot of that's gone now. I have a bit of a northern accent now, but um, it's a lot more neutral than it used to be. And um, they basically said, go away and get elocution lessons, learn how to talk and reapply again in the future. But, um, you know, at the moment we can't accept you, which was really gutting. Especially, I think it would have been easier if I'd heard that I wasn't good enough. But to hear that you were good enough and they you know, they were really impressed, but they weren't happy with the way that you speak was really upsetting. And, and that isn't something now that's carried over into the forces, by the way. I mean, bear in mind, this is what in 2000, so 22 years ago now, a long time ago. And it's not something that, you know, since I joined the Air Force, lots of people came through from different backgrounds and all different walks of life. So it changed a lot. Um, I think I was at the very end uh, at that part of the application process very end potentially of the air force where it was um the landed gentry if you like that generally tended to get in with a few exceptions um so yeah so i didn't get in at that point um i doubled down on the business i got a part-time job as well as studying for my a levels um which are your kind of second stage of um, examinations in the uk from 16 to 18 years of age and um i 
on the day I finished my last A-level examination, I flew out to Florida and did my self-funded PPL. So I used the money that I'd made from my business um, and spent pretty much all of that on getting my private pilot's license out in Florida. So I went out to Florida for three weeks initially, um, got my private pilot's license, um, and then actually got offered a job, if you like, to stay there, um, help with the flying school, um, and become a commercial pilot in America. So that was where I actually stayed there and, and then went down that route. Um, in the meantime, was applying for the Air Force to get in as a direct entrant pilot um, and not go for a sixth form scholarship. Now, having spent you know, got some life experience. I'd got my private pilot's license. I'd done some extra flying on top. I'd gone and lived for a few months over in America. Um, uh, you know, I managed to escape from um, where I'd uh, where I'd been brought up, and yeah, ended up in a place where I was lucky enough to be accepted by the Air Force. Eventually, um, so I joined the Air Force. Worked very hard through. Um, RAF Cranwell through the um, officer training course at RAF Cranwell um, and then went off and did my flight training in the Air Force and eventually ended up being a frontline helicopter pilot, um, primarily flying the, the Puma helicopter um, and then I became a flying instructor. Um, so I was the youngest instructor in the flight, in the, the youngest helicopter instructor in the Air Force at 25 um, and ended up teaching at the Defence Helicopter Flying School on the Griffin. Um, which is uh, effectively like a Huey, but with two engines and four blades, um, for those that aren't aware of what a Griffin might be, and an aircraft called the Squirrel, which is a single-engine, um, three-bladed helicopter that we use for basic training. So I did my course on the Squirrel, um, and then uh, and then my actual kind of instructional training on the, on the Griffin. Um, I then went on... Back to, I went back to the Puma. I got called back to the front line um, because they needed the experience that I got. So I became an instructor on the Puma 1 and then I helped to lead the training team that brought the, a new aircraft into service for the Air Force called the Puma 2. Um, so and I always said it's funny, I suppose, um, I always said the biggest mistake that we made in the, the Puma 2 upgrade program was calling the aircraft a Puma 2 because it was so different than the Puma 1 was. Um, it was such a different aeroplane. It looked similar from the outside, but it was a totally different aircraft. We needed to call it someone else, but uh, we didn't. We, we kept the name as the Puma 2. Um, that's way above my pay grade. Um, and it was an incredible aeroplane. I flew that for um, for uh, a couple of years um, and unfortunately had an accident uh, whilst I was flying. Um, a a no-fault accident. My seat um, broke whilst I was flying at night and I damaged the vertebra in my neck and, and ended up actually being medically discharged um, from from hospital, uh, from the Air Force, sorry, and spending a lot of time in hospital. Um, and that's one of those things that still affects me now, and I think it probably will do for forever. But what was quite interesting was that whilst I was in the Air Force, I was still flying um, model helicopters. I flew those at the weekend, or I, I was flying model helicopters. I kind of got into that when I started to earn a wage and, and started to, um, to get some more money once I joined the Air Force. And I used to get bantered remorselessly at work for flying model planes and helicopters. You know, people would be like, well, hang on. So you go flying the real thing in the week. And then when you're at home at the weekends, you want to go flying model planes and helicopters. Yeah, to be honest, because I'm absolutely obsessed with it. I love it. I cannot get enough of being surrounded by flying and aviation. And, you know, and that's um, and, and that's just how it is. That's that's a bit of me. Right. 
Um, and that led, I suppose, actually, whilst I was still in the Air Force and still flying, um, at the end of 2008, we actually, um, I was doing a little bit of um, work on the side, I suppose you could say, a little bit of moonlighting when I got chance, when I wasn't away on the front line and um, away for months on end. When I was back in the UK, um, we started getting some film and TV companies that, um, you know, were asking, could we put a a camera on a model helicopter and we're like well i don't really think it's a thing there's not many people doing it you know no one know doing it that we know of at the moment um but we can certainly have a go and actually at the the very end of 2008 and very early 2009 so january february 2009 we actually put a brand new canon 5d mark ii onto a massive custom-built model helicopter um and we tried flying it um, to limited degrees of success, um, you know, the we actually we got the camera in the air, which was the first thing. Uh, we found a way for us to be able to see that camera um, footage on the ground, so that we could see what the camera could see. It was delayed and it was analog. It was really, uh, it wasn't a great system. It's not, you know, something that certainly like we're used to now, um, particularly with DJI aircraft. Um, you know, as I as I shoot this podcast, but. That was where we were at, and we managed to get this aircraft in the air with a camera on and get some kind of airborne footage. It wasn't usable. It was pretty awful. Um, it was really shaky, lots of vibration in there. But that then led us down the route, myself and a friend, to say, hang on a minute, there must be a way of making this work. You know, we can lift the camera. So now, you know, we can lift the camera, we can see the footage. What can we do to be able to get rid of those vibrations? So it was a constant process, a constant, you know, iteration, different blades, different types of blades, different um, different length blades, all sorts of different things. We tried different vibration dampers to mount the camera, different head speeds on the, the model helicopter, um, you know, 10,000 RPM and things like that. It was, it was interesting trying to go through that iterative process of tweak, build, rebuild sometimes, um, get the camera in the air, see what happened and, and go from there. And eventually we got to a point where we could get something that was passable. You know, we got some level of footage for a minute or two at a time where we could capture a shot that no one else would be able to without a helicopter or a massive crane. Um, and, and we could get something for film and TV. And, and that was what we started to do. Um, we built our own gimbal. Um, and, and we managed to get some control in there and, and some more vibration reduction in there, um, you know, and, and it worked. We ended up with a model helicopter that two of us were required to fly it. Um, I flew the helicopter, my friend flew the gimbal and, and operated the camera in the loosest sense of the word because you couldn't, you know, we couldn't roll or cut the camera. Once we got airborne, we had to start it recording, check it was recording, then lift off and fly and then land and, and stop the camera again. Um, you know, we couldn't change any of the settings. We couldn't do zoom. We couldn't do aperture. We couldn't change ISO. We couldn't change white balance. We couldn't do anything once we got the aircraft in the air. So it was very trial and error. It was very hit and miss. Um, but we got some stuff, which was amazing. Um, you know, and, and I think that was what people started playing around with for a few years that led us to the point we're at now. You know, we wouldn't have the technology and the innovation that we have now if 
I guess we hadn't started doing things like that back in the day and pushing the boundaries of, of what was available. Eventually, we actually ended up purchasing a, um, a carbon fibre gimbal. I think it was for like 15,000 quid um, direct from the USA. And it was this was where we got to now. You know, people were buying, starting off these model helicopters. They were starting to buy solutions um, and build solutions that that were working, um, and that was where we got to. Um, and you know, and then we were in business. We got that through um, that gimbal through. We built it. We tested the life out of it. Um, we got airborne. Um, started to advertise the um, the services that we could have on a website, and and we actually got a lot of interest. Um, a lot of people came to us because we were, I think, one of the only people in the UK doing it at the time. You know, there certainly weren't many of us less less than a handful of people doing it and doing it well um but if i'm honest it was absolutely terrifying um because the size of these helicopters the head speeds that we had to spin these one and a half meter rotor blades at so you know just over a three meter rotor span on some of the aircraft that we flew some of the helicopters that we flew it was absolutely insane um you know there was no insurance available at the time there were no real regulations available at the time um, or required for us to hit at the time um so yeah it was terrifying Um, and that did limit the locations that we would operate at you know we'd only operate in outdoor spaces we wouldn't operate around people um, unless they were the talent in the thing that we were flying for um, and, and they'd been briefed and we'd been briefed and we knew what we were we were going to do and they, they were happy with it. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a really interesting time, uh, you know, pushing those boundaries. And, and it's really nice to look back now and say, actually, we were part of that. And that was really cool. You know, we were there from the very beginning or before the beginning, if you like. Um, I, unfortunately, then I had to leave it alone for a couple of years. Um, I ended up being very busy on the front line with the Air Force. I wasn't able to carry on flying um, for the film and TV stuff. I had to move away from doing that. Um, we sold the aircraft and uh, and the the gear that we'd pulled together and created, and um, another company went off and used that to good effect. Um, and obviously, you know, then got into kind of the, the drone side of things when that came along. Um, I then, when I got back from doing all of my frontline work and ended up on the instructional side of things, wanted to get back into it. And when I came back into it, a company called DJI had just bought out. Um, a stabilizer for model helicopters. Um, so we used to have a, you know, a gyro on the model helicopter that would help you hold heading. It would hold the tail in the right place. Um, regardless of kind of the, the power setting that you were using at the time, the amount of pitch that you were pulling onto the blades. Um, and they bought it out. And I think it was called the ACE one helicopter stabilizer was the one that we, um, we bought into. Um, and, and it was amazing because all of a sudden we had a way of getting a model helicopter to the point where you could press a button and it would stay stable. It would stay in one place because bear in mind before that, um, you had to fly, you were flying fully manual. Okay. So if you wanted, you had to put the model helicopter with the camera exactly where you wanted. If you wanted to hover that aircraft and there was a 15 mile an hour gust in wind, you had to account for the gusts as the pilot, you know, and make sure that you could do that in any orientation. Um, whether it was nose in, facing towards you, nose out, nose side, it didn't matter. You had to be able to account for that. And all of a sudden, we had a system that we could put onto the aircraft that meant that we could just boop, press a button and the aircraft would almost perfectly hold its position. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it was at the time compared to any other option. Um, you could also then you know, make it do certain things so you could follow a line or you could make it crawl at a certain speed. There were different things you could do with it, which was amazing because... It just wasn't a capability up until that point, you know, and all of a sudden then 
I think people started to realise that this was going to be a thing. Um, and then, you know, it, it moved on seriously from that when DJI then bought out their multi-rotor flight controllers and their multi-rotor aircraft, their kits and the uh, the frames, uh, the, as it was the flame wheel and things like that at the time. That, that I think, was the game changer when you moved from having to use a, mo- mo- a massive model helicopter to a drone as we as we know them now um you know all of a sudden things were not necessarily um financially achievable because actually the original drones that could lift proper cameras as we would have called them back in the day you know dslrs and things like that you you couldn't really lift um, production cameras at the time you had to fly a massive model helicopter a custom-built helicopter and all of a sudden then you're into massive drones to do that but all of a sudden people had a capability and people could see it and it was obvious which way it was going to go. So I started doing that again alongside flying um, and unfortunately I had a flying accident um, in 2014 um, and ended up in hospital and and during that time my wife was six months pregnant at the time with our first child as well. Um, I'd just been told I was getting a fast jet crossover um, so I was going to go away from flying helicopters in the Air Force, go and fly fast jets and um, become an instructor on that side of things which was my dream, right? That was all I'd ever wanted to do. Um, and, and not that flying helicopters in the Air Force was a bad thing but it, it wasn't where I'd always wanted to be. And uh, yeah, I was six weeks away from achieving that, had an accident, damaged the vertebra of my neck and, and that was it, you know, medically discharged. And I was out and we had to work out what to do. So while we were lying in hospital and, and I had 12 months, right, basically from f- from the accident to being unceremoniously dumped out of the military, um, I started looking at what can we do next and, and what skills do I have? And we looked at getting back into software, getting back into computers. Um, but actually, we realised that with my aviation knowledge and background, my training background, as I got at the time, you know, I'd been teaching in the Air Force for years at this point um, as a flying instructor, um, you know, very good at public speaking, more than happy being on a stage, talking to lots of people at a time um, or you know, in a room, an intimate setting, talking around a fireplace with people, it didn't matter. Um, and there were a couple of training companies that were just starting in the drone space. You know, the the regulations were just coming out. The first iteration of the regulations were coming out from our civil aviation authority in the UK, um, who kind of led on that side of things at the time. Um, and it was like, right, well, hang on a minute. We, we've spoken to these other companies. Um, I, I did some outreach to these other companies and said, look, can I help you build your training and make it better? This is my background. This is what I've done. This is where I'm at at the moment. Can I help you? And the, the two companies at the time weren't interested in me helping, basically. Um, so I said, OK, cool. I'll do it myself. Um, we will set it up because your pricing models are confusing. Your training is inappropriate. You know, you're teaching um, a week long, effectively basic private pilot's license syllabus for people who are going to be flying drones. They don't need to know how to offset for drift if they're flying from a Cessna 150 from Birmingham to Exeter Airport. We don't need to know that when we're flying drones within line of sight. Okay, there's other stuff we need to know. Your pricing models are really confusing. You're charging extra for flight exams. You're charging people an annual fee to come back and do their flight exams again once a year or else you'll tell their insurance company that they're invalid and all this sort of stuff. I said, no, that isn't how it works. This needs to be about safety. This needs to be about teaching people properly, effectively, efficiently in a way that makes sense and is relevant to what they want to do and for a cost-effective price point. And that's what we did. So we set up a company called Aerial Motion Pictures. Um, 
we petitioned the CAA to allow us to become a training company because the CAA at the time only wanted two or three training companies um, and they didn't want a person, a small company, if you like, um, in inverted commas, um, to become a training entity. They wanted to just have a couple. And funny old thing, the couple that were out there had links into the CAA and they knew people and people from the CAA were going to leave and join them. So it was quite an interesting process. But after about eight months of us petitioning the CAA constantly, they have eventually um, reneged on the fact that we wouldn't be allowed to become a training company and allowed us to become a training company. Um, so we did two things. We, as aerial motion pictures back in the day, um, we specialised in heavy and very heavy lift in high-risk environments. So I was flying very large custom drones, custom-built drones with very large film and TV cameras in places that other people couldn't fly drones or wouldn't fly drones, okay? Um, and, and it was really interesting because I got to do some really interesting flying all over the world. Alongside that, um, we taught thousands of people in a classroom in our first couple of years how to pass their examinations and get in the UK their CAA approvals. It was quite a, a long-winded process at the time, you know, theory exam, um, practical exam. Um, it was quite expensive. There was there was a lot involved back in the day. It's not like it is now at the time of shooting this where you can do it all online and um, yeah, and, and, and it's a fairly straightforward, well-trodden path. Back in, back in the day, back in the day, really old saying that um it was one of those things that there were lots of things you had to know you had to learn you know and know and you had to do things safely because ultimately the aircraft at the time weren't as um, safe and robust and reliable as they are now they were a lot bigger and heavier so if something did go wrong it would have much more potentially catastrophic impact and, and effect than it does now so a very different environment um so yeah, it was it, it was a really interesting experience creating that training, delivering that training to thousands of people. It was amazing to meet so many people within the industry, getting into the industry back in the day. Um, and I really enjoyed it. It was an amazing time um, to be part of the industry. The industry has changed a lot over the last couple of years, but we'll talk about that more as we go forwards and, and bring out more podcasts for you. Um, but yeah, off, off the back of that and with the heavy lift, the high risk stuff, I travelled the world and operated drones for Hollywood films, for TV shows um, that you will have watched at some point. Um, I went and 3D mapped gold mines in Peru, um, in the Dominican Republic, over in Africa. You know, we did all sorts of things with drones back in the day. Um, I did the first ever international live sports broadcast from a heavy lift drone uh, where we were flying for America's Cup TV in Bermuda for the America's um, the America's Cup sailing event um, back in 2017 and we were launching a free fly Alta 8 and a custom built drone from the back of a boat and then chasing after the America's Cup boats um, with a production camera um, and then landing back on the boat again. It was abs an incredible experience and we went on to do that for world sailing and, and lots of different things because the broadcasters liked the the footage that we provided so much. So, you know, lots of experience all over the world, flying all different things and, and, and also teaching all over the world as well. Um, and all the while, whilst all this was going on, whilst I was all over the place delivering the, the highest level of drone production that we could while we were delivering courses all the time, I'd fly back and teach a course and then fly out to somewhere else again. Um, 
many a night spent in my hotel rooms whilst we were out on production. I mean, Bermuda was six weeks, you know, it was a six week production gig. Lots of these things were a month away from home. And I, rather than going to the pub every night, I used to sit down and I would write new courses because for me, it's about helping you to get better, right? It's always been about that. Um, the the teaching side was purely to keep my friends and colleagues who were flying around at low level in the military safe because the more people we can reach, the more people we can educate, the more people we can say, look, this is what why you need to know the rules. Not the, you know, a lot of companies say, these are the rules you need to know. We say, right, you need to know these rules and this is what, what they are. These are what they are. But this is why you need to know them. You know, and I talk about bird strikes that I've had in the past and I show people videos and, uh, and, it, and I think it hits home and, and that's how we've always done it. And it's the same with what we're doing here with the drone mentor, right? I'm trying to do this so that you can get the most out of your drone so that you can change your life and your family's life just potentially by flying a drone around. So yeah, so that's what it's all about. And, and at night, we're on a real tangent then, sorry, you're going to get used to this if uh, if you follow along, I'm afraid. Um, every night I would sit down and I would create new courses. I'd create new training programs. I'd create new content um, that, you know, about business and drone flying and um, how to improve your videography and photography, about personal development, about creating a community. And we did a great job of that, I think. And, you know, create an online channel with hundreds of videos on. Um, we were dropping daily videos onto that channel, building up an incredible following there. And all of a sudden, boom, COVID hit. Just when we were getting into role, we'd into onto a role with it all. We'd taken on new staff. We'd got video editors in. We've got production manager in. Um, we'd got a dedicated studio, and all of a sudden, bang! Everything stopped, as it did for the whole of the world. Right? Um, I mean, who saw that coming? But hopefully, we're on the the recovery from that now. And when we looked at it, you know, we we had to think about what we wanted to do. We'd built this company that was growing quickly. We'd, we'd invested a whole bunch of money just before COVID hit into this, building this community resource up for everybody. And, um, and all of a sudden that, you know, the rug was pulled out from underneath us. We managed to pivot really quickly. Um, and I'm really proud of what the team and I managed to achieve because, you know, we took everything from a classroom based training um, product to an online training course. And since then, you know, since in the last two years, we've taught more than 43,000 people, which actually is incredible. You know, we couldn't have, have even reached out to those many people, let alone taught those many people um, ha had it not happened. So I'm really proud to say we pivoted quickly and didn't let it get the better of us. Um, you know, it was a time when we could have just decided to close the door, turn the lights off and walk away. But that hopefully you're getting from the, what, 35 minutes-ish that we've been talking now that I've been chatting to you. Uh, that isn't what I do, right? We, we move forwards and we keep we keep pushing the boundaries. We keep pushing the limits. We keep trying new things and, and seeing, you know, what processes we can put in place to make things work. So that's what we did. But the craziest thing is that in teaching these 43,000 people, it re-emphasised to us that the feedback we were getting was that you know the training's great we love it you guys are awesome but we really need to know a bit more than just that okay um we need to to know how we build ourselves around the drone that we have because nowadays it's not about the drone okay you, you know gone are the days where you could have a website you could buy a drone and you can get work now, it's not even about the drone you have. 
Okay, it's about what you do to get yourself out there. It's about what you do with that tool because all of the drones now, you know, you take DJI because they're the biggest manufacturer out there at the time of, of doing this. There's no doubt about it. They control the market. You know, if you get a Mini 3 drone, which at the time of doing this podcast has just come out, it's brand new, that thing is exponentially better than anything we had when we were spending effectively £100,000 a time to get a production camera in the air, which in itself is worth hundred grand plus fifty grand's worth of glass. You know, we, we sometimes we were insured for just over a quarter of a million pounds worth of equipment in the air. And what we got from that, carrying it around in a, a transit van, okay, a Ford Transit, and, and at what, one point when we first started, that's what we needed just to get one basic camera in the air that we couldn't even control once we got airborne, right? You've got more than that now in the palm of your hand, in your pocket, that you can buy for less than a thousand pounds, all right? A thousand dollars, whatever it may be. It's unbelievable what you can do with the drones that we've got available to us nowadays. But it's actually now, yes, you've got to get your certifications in certain countries, but it's now about what you do with that afterwards. How do you use it as a tool? Are you going to use it to market? How do you market yourself? If you want to be a full-time drone pilot, how do you become a full-time drone pilot? Okay. Um, and that really, I think now is going to lean on my experience over the last, crikey, what we're looking at, I suppose, 14 years of doing aerial flying with model aircraft and drones. That's what we're going to lean on to create this new platform, the Drone Mentor platform, for all drone pilots to learn and build and grow together and help each other out. And I'm so excited to have that opportunity to be able to do that with you um, and do it all together, okay? Yet, by all means, I am the Drone Mentor. I'm going to try and bring you that. I'm going to try and lead it all and keep it on one thread. And there will be courses that, you know, there will be this podcast. There will be YouTube videos. There will be other things that you can get a hold of, that you can download, that you can access. And that's amazing. Okay. But I also want the steer from you. So I need, to, I need you to get in touch with me and please let me know what you'd like to see. All right. What you'd like to know, what you'd like me to tell you, who you would like to see. You know, if there are influential people in the industry that you yourself would like to hear from, let me know. Is it Trent Palmer, you know, who some of you may know as a, um, you know, on YouTube, um, flying a kit fox around in America. But he actually started a company called Copter Kids, which is one of the very first companies in the world to be flying cameras on model helicopters. He's one of the people that I looked at as one of the pioneers in this industry years and years ago when we first started flying model helicopters as well. Right, what's Trent got? How is he doing it? What settings are they using? You know, and do you want to hear from people like that? If you do, please let me know. Please get in touch. Um, hello at thedronementor.com is the best place. Or go over to thedronementor.com and join that email list and join the community thereafter um, and let us know what you'd like to see. Um, I've just realised I've been going on for more than 40 minutes now, so I'm, a, I'm sorry for that. Like I say, this isn't how the podcast will normally come to you, and uh, as far as I, I think anyway, unless this is what you want, I'm more than happy to come and do this, but I'll probably reserve these kind of things for, uh, for other forums, and if people want to hear it, they can come get it. But uh, yeah, please... Let us know. Um, please, you know, make sure that you give this um, podcast a rating and a review and share it with people as well that, you know, who might like it in the industry um, and go and sign up. 
to thedromental.com and I will see you or I'll speak to you in the next episode, which should be dropping next week. So stay tuned. Thank you ever so much for listening. I'll see you next time. But until then, fly safe and blue skies. Mm -hmm.